Today's reading is Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. In your pew Bibles, it's page 792, if you want to read along. Now, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Thank you, Arlene. In addition to the notices, I'd like to draw your attention to Jenny Poulter's ordination on the 8th of February next year. It's lovely having Jenny back with us after a year of uh, placement at St Hilary's Kew, uh, but she'd love you to join with her and celebrate on that day, and I just do commend that to you. Well, it was October 2003 that Debbie and I learned that we'd be moving with our three boys, Matthew, David, and Christopher, to Caulfield. And it did start, as Andrew said, on a very wet Thursday evening, January the 29th, 2004. And I'll never forget the sight of cars floating down Glenferry Road ahead of us and thinking, how were we going to get there? We made our way from Baldwin, North Baldwin, and to my great relief, we somehow made it through the waters, and the records show that nine centimetres of rain fell that night in Caulfield, or three and a half inches by the old measure. Actually, the, the first meeting I ever attended in Caulfield uh, was a few months earlier in the home of one of the local Jewish families. I'd been invited to speak to an action group about faith differences, and particularly about uh, Islam and the issues that had been happening in the world recently. It seemed an important gathering to be part of. Why did we come to Caulfield? Well, I've worn many hats in my life, and perhaps it was attracted to the possibility of wearing a different kind of hat. (laughs) Philip Freer, eat your heart out. (laughs) Well, I have visited and spoken to many, many Jewish groups in this area during our years here and overseas, but I've never got to wear a, a, a Stremel hat, as it's called. <laughs> I've missed out on that. Well, Debbie and I came here following a call from God that interrupted me from my job in academia at Melbourne University, and he called me to be a pastor. As it's happened, 16 of our 21 years of ordained ministry in a parish context have been here at St. Mary's and then Oak Tree with St. Clement's. 
Uh, if this is something that we'll always be grateful to you all for, it's, it's a, a, been a wonderful privilege, an absolute privilege, and so much has happened during these 16 challenging and rewarding years. It's something that God did to us. He, he did this to me. He set us here. And we, as it happens, we've spent the bulk of our parish ministry in this place. But I'm not standing here this morning to reminisce. I'll be speaking lots of thank yous later over lunch. I'm actually here to preach. I have preached, I calculated, about 1,200 times in the past 16 years. Around 1,000 times on Sundays in Caulfield, plus about 250 times during the past seven years at Emmanuel Iranian Church in Dandenong. And I must say that despite um, no lack of experience, I always find it in some degree daunting to preach. It's such a responsibility to teach the Word of God. I'm conscious that the words teach the nations which are inscribed over the arch of this church 148 years ago keep calling us to stay on track. It's a very serious thing, a weighty thing, to be speaking about the things of God. But what is preaching? It's an opening of the Word of God to others. It's an exercise in communicating the timeless message of the Scriptures, but in such a way as to shift people's worldview and bring them to a point of decision for their personal lives too. It's about conveying an enduring, transformative understanding of Jesus Christ. My Methodist preacher grandfather... Percy used to say that preaching should inform the intellect, stir the emotions, and challenge the will. I hope that all of this has happened here over the years. I did ponder about what to speak on today. There is that wonderful reading from Matthew 11, which Arlene read for us, which is the set reading for the third Sunday in Advent. But I've chosen instead to share some reflections uh, on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3. Now, Corinth was a large and important city, an important trading post, straddling an isthmus between east and west. According to Acts 18, Paul spent 18 months there planting a church which included both Jews and Gentiles together. And when he wrote this letter, he was concerned at the time about a number of serious problems that were faced by the church in Corinth. These included sexual immorality, the poor conduct of services, their over-excitement about spiritual manifestations becoming competitive about things like divine healing, miracles, speaking in tongues, and prophesying. And to top all this off, the church in Corinth was riven by factions. People were identifying with one traveling preacher after another. Some said they were followers of Paul. Others said they belonged to Apollos. Others were for Peter, also called Kephas. It was a total mess. So, Paul writes this chapter to address these factions, and I'd like to to read this for you now. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you're still not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For as long as there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? 
What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace God gave to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been done and built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Well, first up in this passage, Paul rebukes the Corinthians. He says, you're still acting like baby Christians, like infants. The fact that you're quarreling out of jealousy shows this. There's too much of your old nature in you, he says, for me to consider you mature in Christ. Mature Christians don't say, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos. But Paul says, that's what you're doing. Enough of this way of thinking. And what's really interesting is the logic or the reasons that Paul gives for this rebuke to them. Why are these factions wrong? First of all, he points out that himself, Paul and Apollos and all the others, they're just servants of the Lord. And then he emphasizes that their spiritual growth has been God's work among them. Yes, Paul did plant. He got the church going. And Apollos, who was a visiting preacher, he watered. He helped them grow more through this teaching. But the growth itself, all of it, was from God. It was God's work. One sows a seed, another waters, but the growth is God. And the various people, he's saying, who contributed to the growth of that church in Corinth have all just been serving the Lord. It was his plan, his intention for them to grow. And these people who helped, they will receive their wages, their recognition, but it has to be from God. The Corinthians, Paul says, are God's field. They're his building. The sign on the church is not founded by Paul or Archbishop so-and-so laid this foundation stone, which a lot of Anglican churches have on them, by the way. 
The sign must be, God built this. This is his house. Be careful with it. Then in verse 10 and following, Paul explains how he sees things as a church planter. He laid a foundation, helping to establish things. The work was not finished. Someone else came to continue. But in the end, it's all built on Jesus anyway. And so he says it's plain wrong to honor or glorify the builders by saying that you're Paul's or that you're Peter's. The pastor or the teacher's work will be tested in its time, of course. There will be time enough for that. The day of judgment, Paul explains, will bring everything to light. If someone has built well, laying down gold or silver or precious stones, it will be clear enough in the end. And if they have built with straw, they did a shonky job, not up to code, this too will become visible. The quality of each person's contribution will be measured and brought into the light, all in good time. But for now, the point is that believers don't need to compete over different people's contributions. It's God's business to judge the finished work. Some, he says, might have even done such a job that their work will be all burnt up at the end. He says they won't lose their salvation, but virtually nothing will be left to show for their labors when they reach judgment day. The whole point, Paul is saying, is that the church is God's creation. You are God's temple, and here in the Greek, the you is plural. The Spirit of God dwells in you all as a community. All you Corinthians, all you Oak Tree members too, the community of believers is the very home of the presence of God, a divine encounter that is powerful and transformative. Anyone who messes with that does so at their peril. It's like God has put up this sign saying, not only this is God's work, but don't mess with my church. So Paul even says if someone destroys the temple, they'll be destroyed by God. It's a very serious business pastoring. It's a God-fearing heavy business indeed. Now I'm very aware of my many flaws. (laughs) You could say I've spent a lifetime contemplating them (laughs) and seeking to address them. Not only always with the best success, but this I know that God doesn't take kindly to people messing with his church. So I have tried and we have tried to serve it faithfully, not using the church as some kind of life support system for myself or my family, or some kind of vehicle of personal self-promotion or a career advancement. The church exists for the glory of God and it must be served in this spirit. Then in verse 18, Paul sounds a warning. His warning is not to be seduced by the so-called wisdom of the age in which we live. What's the connection? Well, I think he's saying that is a good way to destroy the church. There are those who say that if only the church would become more like the world in its ethics, its values, its obsessions, and its passions, then it would be so much more attractive to people. People would just love to come to such a church. But the reality is that there's an incredible futility in a church seeking to ground itself in the changing and fickle values of the society around us. I wouldn't get out of bed on Sunday morning to attend such a church. God's truth does not change and bend to the winds of human culture. Yes, we can and must find new language to communicate the truth of the gospel to every generation using all the God-given talents and giftings that we can muster. We use all kinds of ways and means and media and music and language and, and images 
to get the message across. But we need to get the message clear and straight before we try and wrap it up in the language of the era in which we live. Over the course of the 20th century, there was a great example of how the church can get so invested in a particular cultural moment that it loses itself. In the 19th century, Romanticism deeply impacted the culture and it impacted the worship practices of the Church of England. For the best part of a century, through its hymns, robed choirs, its church architecture, which emphasized the mystery of God, the Church of England rode a cultural wave and it was great while it lasted. But that was all pushed aside by rock and roll and the video age. Television killed even song. <laughs> Churches that hung on to the romanticism of Anglican prayer book worship and hymns ancient and modern, perhaps confusing a particular style of worship for the substance of faith in Christ, they withered and died, and they are dying still. So Paul warns, don't let the spirit of the age determine how you build. Jesus Christ, he says, has the measure of the futility of the wisdom of our age, the age we live in, the wisdom of the world around us, its institutions, its cultural and moral preferences. He calls this foolishness. Can you see it? Let me put it another way. There's an incredible radicalism in the teachings of Jesus. It overthrows and challenges the so-called wisdom of the world. Sometimes I meet people who say that all religions teach the same values. The underlying assumption is that the native wisdom of humanity is everywhere the same and basically good, and it permeates all religious expressions. I think actually nothing could be further from the truth. A very simple and profound example, which I've pondered deeply over the years. The Bible teaches that the human problem is sin, and the solution is repentance, leading by God's grace to salvation, a sovereign intervention of God, amazing grace. This is the journey from slavery to freedom. But not all ethical traditions accept the idea of sin or even evil, let alone consider it to be a major human problem. It's a distinctive Christian perspective. Another example. I have an Iranian friend called Mansour. He was once a drug addict and wasting away on the streets of Tehran. As he described, he was trying to catch even just a little bit of sun each day to keep warm. He fled Iran to come to Australia and in detention center on Christmas Island, someone gave him a Bible, and in that Bible he read a single verse which turned his life around completely. It was Matthew 5.8. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, that did it for Mansour. He'd never heard anyone say that what the heart desires is of great moral significance in God's eyes. He never heard anyone challenge that male hungry gaze that he was all too familiar with. Everything he'd been taught in his previous religion had been about obeying external laws, applying to observable behavior. But here Jesus was saying that the interior cultivation of a desire, a fantasy if you like, could be as evil as the destruction of a woman's marriage by adultery. Jesus called people to change and challenge their desires to be consecrated to God in their innermost hearts. My, my friend Mansour found this revolutionary. It was so different from all the things he'd learnt and been taught 
that he decided to follow Jesus there and then based on that one verse, I must follow this Jesus. And he's one of the most passionate believers and worshippers I've ever met. The challenge for Christian communities in this ever more secular age is to maintain our distinctiveness, not to blend into the cultural mainstream. We need to be as radical as Jesus, and that is very, very radical indeed. So don't you dare boast about human leaders. As Paul says, that will only get you tied up in the folly of the age. Be grounded in Christ, in the radical values he taught. We need to hold on to a radical vision of the call of Jesus Christ, his call to love, his call to a sacrificial life. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. Go to that place of execution. You need to die to yourself, he said, to be wholly consecrated to God. Jesus calls us to seek the way of God above all things. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these other things will be added to you. People of Oak Tree and friends, you're about to undergo a change of pastor. It will bring changes, perhaps many changes. I pray and expect that the changes will advance God's purposes for this church more than ever before. I need to acknowledge too that the process of reviving Oak Tree St. Mary's originally from near death has been a long and slow one, at times painstaking. It began with the ministry of Ray Brooks in the 1980s and early 90s, and then with Barry and Jan Green through the 90s and the early noughties. And now for a season, Debbie and I have picked up the baton, and there's more to come. The work is not finished yet. The building is still being built. And I believe the best is yet to come. This church has a stunning, amazing heritage as a church of global vision and global harvest. It was the premier global missions church in Australia for 30 or 40 years. It has been a world-changing church, full of world changes. To this day, Korean Christians come here in groups on pilgrimages to visit what they consider to be the origin of the National Church of Korea. This heritage in our time is being revived, but there's more to come. Debbie and I have tried in fear and trembling to lay solid foundations in the Word, in the Spirit, in Jesus Christ, to build God's house. We have kept an eye on coming revival of a breaking forth of God's purposes in this city and nation beyond what we can imagine. And we will keep praying for this church for that. There is more to come. The best is yet to come. When I was inducted on that very wet night of February the 29th, 2004, there was a biography of Mark Dury in the end of the program. I'd been asked to provide some info. And at the end of the, these various thoughts, I, I wrote this. How can two pages sum up a life? It is with the conviction that the best is yet to come that Mark and Debbie are coming to St. Mary's. Jesus said that the fields are ripe for harvest, but yet he said there always seems to be a great labor shortage in the harvest industry. And so he told us to pray for more laborers for the harvest. Could you be willing to be part of the answer to someone else's prayer? My challenge to your wills this day is to serve in the harvest fields of the Lord with joyful, surrendered hearts. The fields are right to harvest. We have been seeing a steady stream of people seeking to know the transforming power and love of Jesus Christ. 
they are wanting and seeking to be discipled in the ways of Jesus. We have done our best to equip you for those tasks. The challenge lies before you. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote that the work of pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's not the pastors that do the work, it's the saints, it's the people of God. Debbie and I have done our very best working day and night for 16 years to equip the saints here. With joy and with thankful hearts for the immense privilege that you and the Lord have afforded us, we are handing this responsibility back to you all, to the people of Oak Tree, of St. Mary's and St. Clement's, and to those who will follow us, and those who in their turn will follow you as well. Thank you all for this privilege. It was for this that God called Debbie and me here, and it's to this that we commend you all here at Oak Tree Anglican for the years ahead. Here there have been many servants who've labored in the harvest, from H.B. McCartney and Sir George Stephen back in the 19th century to you all here today. I look around and see faces that we have come to love and respect deeply, and there will be more servants too until Christ returns. Keep your eyes on the prize, on Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Remember, as Paul says at the end of this chapter, that in Christ, all things are yours. In Christ, all things are yours. Let's worship the Lord.